Well, today we are in 2 Samuel 15. And by way of reminder, uh, the f- book of 2 Samuel neatly divides in two sections. The first section, chapters 1 through 9, really outlines for us the, the height of David's life where he is totally dependent on the Lord. He doesn't take a move without seeking guidance from God. Prayer is a central part of his life. And God blesses him greatly. But when we get to chapters 10 through 12, David starts becoming more self-reliant than God-reliant. And when that starts happening, he ends up in a downward spiral culminating in him committing adultery. And then, to cover it up, committing murder. We know from Psalm 51 that David was miserable following that sin. We know from 2 Samuel chapter 12 that he most likely waited at least nine months before actually coming to the Lord and saying the same thing about his sin that God says about it, confessing it. And when he finally confesses his sin, just like for all of us, God always forgives us of the guilt of our sin when we confess it before him. But while God is always faithful to forgive us the guilt of our sin, oftentimes we still suffer the consequence of our sin. And actually the rest of the book, chapter 13 and following, outlines the consequences of David's sin. In chapter 13, we saw that David's sin imprinted on the lives of his sons, just like David saw and took what was not his. His son Amnon saw and took what was not his, his half-sister. And we saw that Absalom, a full brother to Tamar, this half-sister that was violated. We saw Absalom, just like his dad, murder his brother Amnon. And following that murder, at the end of chapter 13, Absalom retreated to his maternal grandfather's home and lived there for three years, separated from his family, separated from his dad. And David did nothing. Last week in chapter 14, we saw David demonstrate ungrace. He didn't reach out to his son. They just lived on in misery. Until Joab, David's nephew and the general of his armies, convinced a wise woman to approach the king and gave David once again a glimpse of God. And reminded David that God is a God of grace and mercy. And even though he punishes sin, 
He finds a way to bring that sinner back into a restored relationship with himself. And at the end of the chapter, David does just that, but it was too little too late. And we see now in chapter 15 that in the absence of grace, rebellion often results. So as we come to chapter 15 this morning, we're going to actually begin a new section that goes from chapter 15 all the way through chapter 20. That section is all about rebellion. We're going to see rebellion, the results of rebellion, and we are going to see the need for men and women who follow after the Lord to live lives that are counterculture, to wait on the Lord, to wait on His provision instead of taking what we want. Let's read the chapter together, actually just the first 12 verses, and I will read it out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Scripture. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or case or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited, and went innocently. And they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. In these 12 verses this morning, we will see Absalom working angles, Absalom maneuvering. He is not... Trusting in the man that God put on the throne, 
his father, David. And in his attempt to overthrow his father, in his rebellion against his earthly authority, he's rebelling against his heavenly authority. In rebelling against his dad, he's rebelling against God. He's saying, I don't trust God's provision in my life. Working angles. Maneuvering. For years and years here at Faith Bible Church, every summer, we have had families from within our church travel to Westboro, Wisconsin to attend Camp Forest Springs Family Camp. My wife and I took our sons when they were in grade school age through early middle school and or through early middle school. I consider Camp Forest Springs one of the premier Christian camps in the United States. Unfortunately, other people do too. And so it's very difficult to get into camp. Way more people want to go than what they have room for people to go. And so for years, they kind of run a, a something like a lottery system. They send out applications for camp. You have to take that application the same day that it comes in the mail and return it or you don't have a chance. And then they take applications out of the mailbag one at a time. And who gets in, gets in. And who doesn't is put on a waiting list. One year we were number 25, family 25 on a waiting list. Didn't get in. Now, I happen to know that the lady who reaches into that mailbag and takes out the letters is a graduate of the same college that I attended in Omaha, Nebraska. Her name is Nancy Croker. And if I chose to do so, which I never did, but I could have called up Nancy and say, Hey, Nancy, this is Steve Benton, fellow graduate of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. My father was president there for years. You probably had him as a teacher. Now, I'm going to be sending up my application for camp, and my application is going to be in a lime green envelope. When you look into that mailbag, if you happen to see a lime green envelope, I wouldn't be offended if you went ahead and chose it. So I'm not trying to control anything. I'm just saying that mine will be in a lime green envelope. Oh, man, are we having good sweet corn in Iowa this summer. If I get into camp, I'm going to bring about four dozen ears of sweet corn up and probably some tomatoes from the garden. And and uh, so if I see you this summer, I'm going to bring you some sweet corn. Now, that would be working an angle. That would be maneuvering. That would be demonstrating that I don't think God's in control. That would be showing that I have to manipulate my circumstances to get what I want. I don't trust God's provision in my life. People desperately need to see today 
men and women and boys and girls who are so yielded to God that they are willing to wait on the Lord's provision in their lives. Demonstrating that by not maneuvering and not working angles. Because when we maneuver and we work angles, we're saying, I don't trust God's provision. Ultimately, that's rebellion. And that's what we find here in Second Samuel 15. This son of David, Absalom, is going to work angles. He's going to maneuver. In fact, in verses 1 through 6, he has a threefold strategy for rebellion. Three things that he's going to do to maneuver the situation. Now, his rebellion here in verses 1 through 6 is not overt, it's covert. It's not through the front door, it's through the back door. It's not bold out front, it's secret. He's going to rebel quietly. And he's going to do it by grabbing for power. Quietly, but grabbing for power. And he grabs for power by... Getting some symbols of power and authority and prestige so that he can be accepted. Just like we see happen today. So, a threefold strategy for rebellion here in verses 1 through 6 of 2 Samuel 15. Strategy number 1, verse 1. I've got to look like I'm in authority. I have to appear that I am a powerful, influential person. In today's world, it would be him saying, I've got to get a really nice car. So what Absalom does is he goes out and gets a chariot and then secures 50 guys that run in front of his horse and chariot. So wherever he goes, there's 50 guys running in front of him. It would be similar today to a high political official having a motorcade in front of him. Absalom has 50 guys on foot. So wherever you go, there goes Absalom. He's got 50 guys running in front of him with a horse and chariot. His dad didn't have a horse and chariot that we know of from Scripture. King Saul didn't, but Absalom did. Now, while David didn't rely on a power symbol... For his authority. It was common in the ancient Near East. In fact, when Israel went to the prophet Samuel and said, We want a king because everybody else has a king. The Lord spoke to Israel through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 11 and told them what to expect. Look what Samuel shares in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 8. This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. They had forewarning. 
And so here's Absalom. I've got to appear like I'm a man of import. I have to appear like I'm influential, that I'm powerful. And so he goes out, secures a chariot, horses, driver, and has the 50 running in front of him. Now he looks important. The second thing that he does in this threefold strategy of rebellion is found in verses 2 through 4. He sets himself up as a judge. So what would happen in the day is that people would come to Jerusalem to plead their case before the king. Absalom sets up at the city gate, and as people are entering the city, hey, where are you from? Like, he's interested. And they would tell him, and he's, well, just share what's happening with me. King's not, the king's not going to be, he doesn't have time for people. And they would share with him. And to every person, Absalom would respond the same way. Look at verse 3. See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. He's, but he's telling that to everybody. Everybody that comes along, he's telling them what they want to hear. Oh, you've got a valid case here. Too bad the king isn't interested. Oh, if someone would just appoint me as judge, I would give everyone justice. He's telling the people what they want to hear. He sets himself up as the solution. So the first thing he does is makes himself look important. Then he makes himself act or appear as important as a fair judge. And the third thing he does in verses 5 and 6 is he feigns humility. It's a false humility. The person would come in and as they see the king's son, they would bow before him and he would grab them, lift them up, and kiss them instead like, well, why would you bow before me? I'm just a humble servant. Yeah. You see, what Absalom is doing here is he is maneuvering people. He's working angles. He's rebelling. Notice verse 6 at the end. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of of the men of Israel. Now, when we think of the word heart, we think of emotion, don't we? Like, I love you with all my heart. We think of it as an emotional term. But for a Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament days, that word heart has a broader connotation than just feelings. The heart would represent the inner person. The heart would represent how a person thinks, their intellect Here, what it's saying is that Absalom stole away people's thinking, their their commitments, their hearts. And it's interesting here that the human author of 2 Samuel uses the phrase, stole away. It's not the first time it's occurred in Scripture. In fact, in Genesis chapter 31, verse 20, the same exact phrase appears in relation to Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban. And in Genesis 31, verse 20, it says, And Jacob 
deceived Laban. Now, if you look in the column, at least in my translation, where there's a little number that says that deceived is a translation of the literal words, stole the heart. You see what 2 Samuel 15.6 is saying is that Absalom is deceiving the people. He's making it look like he cares about them. He doesn't. He's making it look like he is going to be a fair judge. He won't. He's making it look like he's influential and powerful and important. He's really not. He's rebelling. He's working an angle. He's trying to make people associate him with success. Those of you who have been at Faith Bible Church for a while will not be surprised that one of the television shows I like to watch is a show about food. I like to watch the show Chopped, where they bring in chefs from across the United States, four of them each episode, and they give each chef a basket of secret ingredients, and they have to make a a meal out of different rounds of these secret ingredients. Most often, as they introduce these guest chefs, they immediately start to maneuver. They start to work angles. They try to show how important they are. They may say something like, well, I was Mario Batali's sous chef for five years. Or... Rick Bayless and I opened a restaurant together, name-dropping. John Besh and I cooked for five years. Almost all of them. Or they will say, I'm unchopped because my father passed away two years ago, and I'm just doing this in memory of him. He really wants the $10,000 and the fame, but he's doing it in memory of his dad. Well, In 2011, I was watching an episode of Chopped, and something happened I'd never seen before. One of the guest chefs was a cook at a Christian camp. He didn't have any names to drop, except Jesus. And he hadn't worked for anybody famous. And you could just kind of see it on the faces of the judges, like, oh, this guy's going to go really far. But he did. He was great. And they got to, he and one other person left standing, and she wanted to win so that she could go see her sick grandmother in a foreign country. And he just humbly cooked, and he won the whole thing. And as they were trying to kick off the woman that he had just beat, he said, hang on a second. I think we both have won here today, and I didn't expect to win any money, so I'm going to take my winnings, and I'm going to buy her her ticket to go see her grandmother. And everybody on the, all the judges just sat there with their mouths open. I looked it up on YouTube the other day. It's had 60,000 views. Kind of an obscure episode. You see... He was a follower of Jesus that was committed to just waiting on the Lord, doing his best, not working an angle, not maneuvering a situation. He was very much counter-culture. Some of my favorite verses 
are 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. I at least weekly preach these to myself, just say them over to myself. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Fantastic verses. Verses that talk about us living counterculture, trusting in the Lord's provision in our lives, waiting on Him, having confidence enough that whatever enters my life, whatever enters your life, is God's best for me and for you. Not having to work an angle, not having to maneuver a situation to take what we want, but rather wait on the Lord. People need to see this flash on, lived out today. They need to see it in the workplace. You have a review coming up. You know that your your group leader is going to rank everybody in your group. You'll be reimbursed according to how you're ranked. Maneuvering would be trying to get in good with your supervisor. Maybe even though you can't afford it, joining the same country club that he is at so that you can spend time with him. Maybe that means you go to the same party he is at and, and even though maybe you don't really feel like it's good for you, you go ahead and just drink alcohol along with everybody else so you fit in. Maybe it's having to take on symbols of, of success by buying clothes that are too expensive or living in a house or a car that, that you really is not wise for you or for me to purchase. You say people need to see a counterculture life lived in the workplace. People need to see counterculture living in the home, in our marriages, as we've talked about this morning. One of the neatest concepts that we goes all the way back to the book of Genesis is that as you look at that husband or that wife to whom you're married, that is that person is God's best for you. When God saw Adam and that Adam needed a spouse, someone to complete him, he created Eve and presented Eve to Adam. And Adam said, she will be bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. By that, Adam is basically saying, wow, I, 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 I really like your provision for me, and I am accepting her as your provision for me. Think about David. David's wife was Abigail. Do you remember what the Scripture says about Abigail? Back in 1 Samuel chapter 25, I don't think there would be too many women that would uh, shrug off what the scripture says about her. 
1 Samuel 25, verse 3, says this. His wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. That's who God provided for him. That's his wife, the one to whom he is to cling. And yet, David was not satisfied in God's provision for him. He had to take. He had to, in a sense, work an angle because he thought there was something better out there than what God had already done. And he suffers for it through the remainder of the book. Even in our service to the Lord, people need to see counterculture living. First Peter chapter four, verse 10 says, as each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another. That means that we utilize our spiritual gifts by building into the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of whether I'm noticed or not. Regardless of whether people think it's significant or not, I just serve. Why? Because I trust in the hand of the Lord. He's the one that's wired me the way I am. He's the one that's gifted me. He's the one that gave me the spouse that I have. He's the one that's put me in this position that I'm in to serve him. Wherever you are in the workplace... The world around us needs to see counter-culture living by us simply waiting on his provision and not working angles, maneuvering, and by doing so, rebelling. Well, verses 1 through 6 show the covert aspect of David's rebellion. When we get to verses 7 through 12... He's coming through the front door. He's going to outwardly rebel. And once again, he's got a plan. He lies and he uses people. Innocent people. That's what a rebellion does. Notice with me in verses 7 through 12 that just as, a, just as Absalom is going to do, this is how people grab for power. By lying and involving innocent people. So in verse 7, it says, It came about at the end of 40 years. That's what the NASB says, New American Standard. A lot of your Bibles will say four years. There's some difference of opinion as far as if that word for four there was singular or plural. Some would say it was meant to be 40 years, and it would be talking about David's 40th year of his reign. Most likely, it's just simply saying that four years have passed since Absalom has been undercutting his dad. So four years of this have gone by, him standing by the gate, him riding around in his chariot, him saying, oh, if you would just come to me, be able to come to me, I would give you justice. And now he goes to his father and said, hey, when I was living at grandpa's house, uh, I made a promise to the Lord, a vow, that if I could ever come to Jerusalem, I would go back to Hebron and worship. Is it okay, Dad, if I go to Hebron and worship? Now, what father is going to tell his son, hey, Dad, um, I would really like to go to this extended worship service. I just, I think it's important for me to go. I, I promised the Lord I'd worship him. And it, would it be okay if I went to a worship service? No, son, you can't go worship. 
No, we wouldn't do that. And neither did David. So David said, sure, go and worship. And it tells us that Absalom goes to Hebron. That's where Israel's first capital was. That's where Absalom was born. And he takes 200 people with him. Most likely, those 200 are David's administrators and his counselors. But when he gets to Hebron, what he does is this. He may have told a half-truth. Maybe he went and worshipped the Lord. But the reason why he went to Hebron is that it's 20 miles away and secure. And then he sent out messengers throughout Israel. And at the sound of the horn, and the horn this one heard this one, and this one heard this one. They played throughout the, the nation of Israel. All these messengers would declare, Absalom is now your king. Rebellion. David, needing to respond, found that his administrators and his counselors, his cabinet, weren't there. They weren't rebelling. In fact, if you look at verse 11, it says they went innocently. Innocently. They didn't know anything. Absalom even recruited David's main counselor, a guy named Ahithophel, most likely Bathsheba's grandpa, the woman with whom he had an adulterous relationship. He didn't like David much. So here we have it. Rebellion through lying and involving innocent people. You know, like maybe someone coming to you and say, don't you think that this was such a bad thing and this shouldn't have happened? And and maybe you kind of just want the person to calm down a little bit and say, yeah, I suppose. And then what do they do? They go to the next person and say, well, Mary Sue and I are really upset about this. That's involving innocent people. Or there's lots of people mad about this. It's the lots of people is you involving innocent people. Here we see rebellion. Making oneself look important. Telling people what they want to hear. Working angles, maneuvering. Not speaking truth. And not speaking in half-truths. I want to read a poem to you this morning. I don't read poetry hardly at all. But today, I want to read you a poem. It's out of a collection, an anthology of poetry by young Americans. If you'd like to purchase this, the ISBN number is 1-883931-17-7. Original purchase price, six ninety-five. Here's the poem. It's called... What you call it? I woke up in the morning and it was really foggy. Since I went to bed late, I was feeling kind of groggy. I looked out the window and I saw something furry, but I couldn't see because the window was blurry. It looked like something from the dump. It was shaped like a big fat lump. Maybe it's a cow. I thought I heard a moo. Or maybe some other animal that escaped from the zoo. It looked pretty rad. I wiped the window and oops, that's my dad. Ethan Benton, age nine. 
Now, my son wrote that poem about me. I took a little fence about the line, it looked like something from the dump, the big fat lump, and maybe it's a cow. That kind of hurt a little bit. But he's a published author. It has an ISBN number. Now, when my son graduated from college and several years ago, and it was time to enter the workforce, he could have on his resume put published American author. True? Well, yeah, you were nine years old, and he wrote about your fat dad outside your window in a, in a kid's poem at Bowman Woods Elementary School, but he could have put that down. Was it truth? Would it be connoting reality? Probably not. That's kind of a half-truth. That's working an angle. That's trying to portray yourself as something that you're not. You see, today, people desperately need to see Jesus Christ lived out flesh on. And one of the things they need to see is men and women, boys and girls who are sold out for Jesus Christ and trust him so much that they don't have to work angles, that they don't have to maneuver, that they speak truth, that they don't involve innocent people and turn things just a hair to make things look the way they want them to look. You see, godly men and women need to model what it means to wait on God instead of taking what we want. Father, we thank you for your word, for the encouragement that it is to us that you are a big enough God, a loving enough God, that we can wait on you that we can humble ourselves under your mighty hand, casting all our anxiety upon you because you care for us. We can wait on you to lift us up in your timing and not grab for what we want. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.